my fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wealth. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at River.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. Over the last five years, the Bitcoin Conference has become the world's largest gathering of Bitcoiners. From breaking announcements and international media coverage to countless meaningful talks by thought leaders and industry innovators, we are excited to continue our drive for global hyper-Bitcoinization. From July 25th to the 27th, 2024, we'll be taking the Bitcoin Conference to the city of music and freedom, Nashville, Tennessee. Join thousands of attendees for countless opportunities to learn, engage, and network across three days of pure Bitcoin signal. Get your tickets now for the best price at b.tc forward slash conference. You are not going to want to miss what Nashville has in store. Hello. Thank you all so much for coming to this panel discussion. I think it's going to be a really interesting and timely conversation about uh, digital assets, uh, about sanctions, aid, uh, strategic competition, uh, and digital authoritarianism. And we've got an incredible lineup of panelists with deep expertise in each of those topics who I'm super excited to introduce. So uh, on the stage, uh, coming up shortly, I think, <laughs> will be uh, Sarah Kreps, the director of Cornell's Tech Policy Institute and a professor there. Uh, Matthew Pines, the National Security Fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, uh, and the Director of Intelligence at Krebs Stamos Group. Finally, we've got Chris Messerol, who is the Director of the Brookings Institution's uh, Emerging Technology and Artificial Intelligence Initiative, and the panel will be moderated by Dan Flatley, the National Security Reporter at Bloomberg. Thank you all again for being here, uh, and yeah, let's get it started. It's okay, you can applaud if you, if you want. Uh, so, <clears throat> good afternoon, uh, thank you for being here. My name is Dan Flatley, I um, a uh, am a national security reporter at uh, Bloomberg News. Um, and just a programming note, my picture uh, on the program is about five years and 50 pounds ago, so if you don't recognize me from that, um, that's, that's why. So we have a great panel uh, here today, and um, I want to thank uh, the Bitcoin Policy Institute and Cornell Brooks Public Tech Policy Institute for hosting. Uh, David already introduced them, uh, so I think we'll just kick things off. Um, <clears throat> I sort of wanted to frame the overall discussion by taking a moment to say, you know, why are we talking about this now? So it's September 2023. Uh, there's a hot war in Europe. There are rising geopolitical tensions between the world's two largest economies. Cryptocurrencies or digital assets have been around in, in some form for the better part of a decade. Uh, and what do we really know about them at this point in terms of how they interact with the world economy, with national security, and with uh, the geopolitical uh, realities that we're facing? So I think just to kind of start the discussion, uh, I wanted to go to Sarah first uh, to ask about sanctions and aid. So that's sort of the, the, you know, our first broad topic area that we want to explore. So <clears throat> I think the question basically is, are digital currencies playing a bigger role in sanctions evasion? Are they playing a role in uh, getting aid to some nations? And how is that all working out? And how is the, uh, the US government thinking about that? Sarah? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Dan, and uh, to my fellow panelists, and to the Bitcoin Policy Institute, and to the Cornell Brooks Tech Policy Institute. It's great to be here. 
Um, I might add another reason why now we're talking about these issues. I mean, over the summer, Congress was debating a number of different pieces of legislation. So this is very much on the radar of, uh, th by this I mean digital assets, of policymakers and lawmakers. And I think, you know, and one of the ways that I approached uh, the question of aid and, and crypto was by way of thinking about some of those policy questions and some of what I wondered were, th were they kind of myths about, was this like fact or fiction kind of exercise about how we should think about these assets? Because when the, when the war started, when the Ukraine war started in the winter of 2022, I think there was a lot of discussion, a lot of hand-wringing about will these, will crypto, will Bitcoin be used to circumvent sanctions? Do we need to kind of tighten up those loopholes so that it's not? Um, and so I, I think these are questions that are not just worth asking retro, kind of looking in the rearview mirror, but thinking about how do we think about these assets more generally? Um, and so I had a piece that came out with the Bitcoin Policy Institute that took stock of that question. Uh, and, and so there were a couple, I think, of considerations. One is to say, look, that the, you know, digital assets certainly can be misused. Um, we know that, that fiat currency can be misused as well. Um, and so how, what is it on balance? How, do, how should we think about it on balance? And you know, one of the things, and I interviewed people in Ukraine who were very adamant about the way in which they were able to use these currencies to generate aid, you know, inbound. But also, you know, one thing that we, I think, take for granted in the United States is just being able to have a bank account. You know, I've looked a lot at the use of digital assets in developing countries. If you're in Kenya, you know, you, you, you may not be able to get a bank account. There isn't sort of the same infrastructure that we have here in the United States. And so on balance, you know, my, my analysis was not just that there were liquidity issues that would prevent large transfers of money to run a G20 economy that is Russia and financing their war, but also just that the way in which these currencies are kind of on the plus side, the salutary side, could be used for hum kind of humanitarian aid, but also for kind of basic banking in developing countries. Uh, Chris, did you want to uh, weigh in at all on this question? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, first of all, just thank you again for the opportunity to speak and, and for this uh, great event. Um, uh, you know, I think the point that's often missed about uh, sanctions or what's, you know, for instance, what the sanctions that were uh, unveiled after Russia invaded Ukraine um, revealed is that we have, a, I think, a misconception about um, where the value actually resides within our financial systems. Um, and what I mean by that is, I think it made a lot of people explicitly aware that SWIFT was a thing, right? That SWIFT is a network where the nodes are controlled by a certain set of actors. And if you are not allowed to transact on that network, it effectively excludes you from a very large portion of economic activity uh, around the world. The corollary, the reason I bring that up is that I think it also forces a lot of folks to recognize that Bitcoin and other you know, cryptocurrencies, which most people just associate with money and that the value in those systems is really accrued, like it's, it's represented ver, you know, via the token itself as some form of money, that that's actually a mistake. The value is in the ledger, right? It's the network and the ability to transact across that network. Um, and you know, I, I think maintaining um, uh, the, the security of that kind of network uh, uh, is a good thing in the long run. I think it does, you know, when it comes to um, the national security considerations of things like sanctions, it will be one mechanism by which you can transfer money in a censorship-resistant way, um, and that, you know, it will make certain kinds of sanctions uh, efforts uh, more difficult. Uh, on the other hand, um, it also has a certain kind of legitimacy globally that um, different actors within the global system are probably over time going to want to uphold, like they're gonna find it useful in ways that they, you know, right after Russia invaded Ukraine, for example, my hunch is that if you're, if you're just approaching this from a purely national security uh, perspective, you're probably gonna look at something like the Bitcoin ledger and be frustrated by it because you can't control it and it, it might allow for th certain kinds of um, transactions to happen that you would prefer not to happen. Um, I would say that that's probably a myopic view. Uh, in the, it's a very short-term view. In the long run, there are going to be occasions where 
even national security experts, certainly in the United States, but among our democratic allies as well, are going to look favorably on, a precisely, on that network precisely for the same characteristics that um, they may find frustrating in, in the current moment. Matt? Yeah, I would say there's yeah the, both a descriptive and a prescriptive side of this debate or analysis. And just on the sort of descriptive side, I think certain things get kind of conflated in a lot of national security and geopolitical discourse around cryptocurrencies, both in terms of like what they refer to when they say cryptocurrencies, because it's quite a complex and varied um, sort of ecosystem when you have sort of, sort of like the old uh, kind of standby kind of core Bitcoin uh, system with dollar-based stable coins that have sort of become like a new feature in the past few years, and then a sort of wide proliferating uh, set of, of other layer ones and layer two stacks and sort of what's gone under the banner of uh, decentralized finance or DeFi. And they each have had, I think, a different impact on what we consider kind of national security uh, equities. You know, a lot of the concerns raised about potential use of Bitcoin and solid dollar-based stable coins to evade sanctions after the the, the imposition on, on Russia <clears throat> last year, that really hasn't manifested. I think that was like a, an hypothesis. And you know we have like a year and a half of data, and the data hasn't borne out that hypothesis. Um, but there are aspects of the broader ecosystem that are you know that are generating like like legitimate national security concerns. And like two specifically are illicit finance and ransomware, right? So <clears throat> illicit finance, mainly um, uh, sort of locus of that is with North Korea, the Lazarus Group, you know where they're targeting essentially very insecure startup protocols, the fact that they have lots of money locked up in these very insecure kind of technical systems, they're just like piggy banks waiting to be stolen. So hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe over a billion dollars, has effectively been stolen by, uh, by uh, very sophisticated cyber actors, mainly operating uh, under the auspices of, of, the, of the North Korean government. Uh, and they have used that to effectively support the weapons of mass destruction pro uh, um, uh, uh, programs. So that is like a legitimate national security challenge, but I think you need to like have a, an acute analysis of exactly where in the broader ecosystem this challenge is manifesting, <clears throat> and is it coming from the fact that you have centuries of resistant transaction systems? Not really. It's just the fact that you have a bunch of people that are throwing lots of money into these sort of gambling projects without very secure code, and it's just like asking for it to be stolen. And the North Koreans are very good at, at, at stealing. Uh, they even you know stole money through this uh, um, an exploit in the, in the SWIFT system, I think, from the Bangladesh um, Central Bank a number of years ago. So. That is like a, an acute concern, but it merits a different policy response than kind of the blanket um, kind of broad brush. Uh, the other is in ransomware. So ransomware is a major kind of new um, sort of change in the incentive structure for, for, for criminals that has only really appeared with the emergence of cryptocurrencies because you could now essentially extort someone through digital space and get payment for it without going through uh, a banking system. That sort of lowers the barrier to entry for criminals to conduct you know, very sophisticated um, uh, sort of cyber attacks on Western companies. It's becoming a major concern, probably one of the top concerns for most um, companies is being the victim of ransomware. Now again, is that is that do you trace that to the fact that you have these centers of resistant and non-state money systems, or do you trace it to the fact that you have just this endogenous proliferation of technology that allows individuals around the world to engage in criminal activity and get paid for it? And you know that is an ongoing policy debate as to whether we you know allow companies to continue to pay those ransoms. You know, there's a whole sort of you know an acute um, deliberation happening about you know what sort of incentives are we providing to the market by you know paying $10, 20000000 million ransoms as, as Caesars just paid a few weeks ago. But it is an acute concern. So I don't want to like brush everything under the rug and say the sanctions thing is a complete misnomer, therefore there's no national security concerns. I think there is a nuanced analysis to look at where these technologies are having an impact. But as Chris said, it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? And how are you going to mitigate those risks while also you know, taking advantage of some of those um, positive opportunities? So I just think you know, too often we sort of go to our, you know, our go-to toolkit or of, of um, kind of it's bad, it's bad guys using this, this thing, therefore it must be a bad thing. And that's, I think, a, too simple of an analogy. So we have, uh, on the one hand, an example with Russia, Ukraine, where cryptocurrencies or digital assets may have not played as big of a role in sanctions evasion as, as may be feared. Uh, but in North Korea and some other types of cybercrime, perhaps a greater role uh, than is appreciated. And as the government, uh, broadly speaking, whether it be the SEC or uh, you know another regulatory agency, takes a look at how to regulate cryptocurrencies or think about cryptocurrencies, um, can you can you talk a little bit about um, how the government is thinking about approaching regulation? Uh, or you know, because one of the frustrations I hear from folks 
uh, in the private sector is that the government has really not issued a clear rules around the use of cryptocurrencies, and in the absence of that, has taken some action um, against specific uh, entities. But you know, there's no there's no rules of the road. So um, I don't know whether Chris or Sarah or Matt, um, if if someone wants to talk a little bit about the, how the government is thinking about this. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's, uh, I mean, one of the challenges with, um, uh, I think what you're alluding to is just, you know, the regulatory status of different cryptocurrencies, whether it's a commodity, a security, right? We have all this kind of, you know, uh, regulatory infrastructure predicated on a 1920s or 1930s economy and, and how that functioned. And the big question is, how do we update that regulatory infrastructure? There's some regulatory agencies that have gone, in my view, well in advance of uh, where the actual law is in trying to adjudicate um, uh, um, exactly you know, what's a, which coins are a commodity or which tokens are a commodity and which ones might be a security. Um, I don't think it's, you know, there's, there's a, we can get into the weeds on this if you want, but the, the Howey test I don't think applies as, as neatly as some uh, in the SEC might, might say that, the, that it does. Um, to be honest, I, I feel there are, there are massive implications for that particular policy debate um, within the financial sector. I don't think it's the most relevant question um, on, from a policy perspective or the most relevant policy debate um, about uh, what you know, policymakers should be doing when it comes to the space, when it comes to the broader, um, uh, uh, the broader kind of national security interests of the United States and others. And the, the reason I say that um, is what we really want, if, you, if you're looking at something like North Korea and some of those hackers, right, one of the things of making that, that's, you know, when regulation is working at its best, what it's doing is it's providing a trusted environment wow. in which kind of actors who are not, you know, uh, who otherwise don't know each other are able to kind of transact uh, freely and with, with some assurance that, um, uh, the integrity of that system uh, has been verified by somebody that they trust and has certain kinds of legitimacy. What's missing right now is a regulatory infrastructure um, to kind of mandate that some of these, uh, uh, you know, like like the North Koreans are basically hacking. I think Matt was alluding to this earlier. A lot of what they're hacking are some of the most insecure projects out there, right? Um, that probably should have a little bit more oversight in some ways before they get kind of massive infusions of capital into them. Um, so I think there's an appropriate role for uh, regulators here. I don't think it's necessarily a question about whether it's you know commodity versus security. Um, I think it's more about what kind of transparency and assurances do we want um, different providers of different kinds of financial services uh, to offer um, uh, you know to offer the people that are trying to transact on that network. Uh, that's a whole kind of bag of worms about how to do that, especially mm -hmm. with decentralized finance. I, I'm I'm well aware of that. Um, but that's the kind of regulation that if you want to make sure that, um, or to minimize the surface area that an actor like North Korea uh, can go after, um, you, that's where I would prefer a lot of the regulatory attention to be going. Um, the, the third point I would say on just the policy side is, um, I also, we may come back to this later on on digital authoritarianism, but th this is kind of my soapbox, I guess, so I'll just get on it um, already. Um, the policy debates about kind of what, you know, regulatory status a certain token should have, I think missed the bigger point about what is at stake with digital technology and digital infrastructure going forward is we, have, we are at an inflection point where there's one path for the future where more and more societies go down this path that, that resembles digital authoritarianism where the, you know, the digital infrastructure is centralized under control of a state. Um, and that state then leverages it for regime survival or kind of other political ends in a way that is contrary to the, the deepest kind of values and convictions that we have as, as believers in democracy. Um, there's another world where we get the regulatory infrastructure right um, and these same digital infrastructures and digital uh, technologies um, lead to a world where there's greater freedom and security. Um, and um, I think we need to kind of predicate some of our, our policy debates over um, uh, how to uh, regulate uh, things like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I would prefer to start from that broader framing because I, I think having a narrower, like a really narrow bore framing, I think loses sight of the bigger picture of what's actually at stake with these technologies. I was just going to say, like, you know, most of what, you know, 
passes for policymaking is very tactical. It's like we're focused on consumer protection, law enforcement, trying to solve this immediate problem. And oftentimes, you know, we've got ourselves in, in a bad position by, you know, solving a very short-term uh, problem with the tactical view, and we find ourselves sort of stuck in this cul-de-sac, and we've now sort of compromised potential strategic opportunity. And so this is, I think, Chris's excellent point is you need to approach these policy discussions with a strategic view, right? I think this is sort of this, the point of this panel is to try to, you know, force that zoom out. And, you know, most of the discussions are obviously like, how do we effectively cancel ransomware? How do you construct, the, you know, a proper regulatory framework for stable coins? How do you, like, you know, properly navigate the Howey test, SEC, um, interpretations, like those are extremely important, very tactical approaches, and there's lots of um, expert analysis. I think what is missing in that broader debate is the strategic view, where is the United States, you know, uh, sitting in its global position across these very complicated and rapidly changing geopolitical technology and economic uh, networks, and where do these emerging networks play into that larger network competition? I think that's, that's exactly the way I try to think about it. Yeah, I guess the thing, what I, what I would say is that I don't think you can divorce the strategic from the tactical. So yes, like policymaking takes place in the trenches, but it's driven by these bigger strategic questions of who do we want to be as a democracy? And right now, uh, it seems as though sort of the inaction, the, the whack-a-mole approach is a, where nothing sort of systematic is being done is a form of action itself. Um, and so you say that, you know, whether it's the SEC, you didn't say this, but like whether it's the F SEC, you implied this, or the CFTC, whether it's a commodity or a security, is in the weeds. I mean, it sort of is, but it is that the answer to that question, I think, is um, going to inform or is informed by how we think about ourselves as a, as, a, as a democracy. Because right now, there's a lack of clarity. There's a lack of regulatory clarity that I don't think is helpful and that then can look almost um, personal and punitive rather than driven by a set of overarching principles. Well, that is the perfect segue to our next topic of discussion, which is uh, US-China competition. So uh, just to sort of frame this, you know, section. Um, in three years, uh, it's conceivable that we will have uh, a central bank in China that has a fully developed central bank digital currency. The ECB, the European Central Bank, could have a fully developed uh, central bank digital currency. The UK could be well on its way to having a central bank digital currency. And the US uh, is, is lagging behind those efforts, I think it's fair to say. So what does that mean um, for US dollar dominance and some of these other instruments like sanctions and other things that we've discussed if the US does not develop a central bank digital currency at the same speed as some of our competitors? I can refund this too. Uh, I'm sure we all can. Um, yeah, so I would step back and look at really the US-China relationship is the most strategic relationship you know, this decade. They call it the, the, the decisive decade, all the cliches you want, but it's, you know, it's referred to like that for a reason. Like it really is a fundamental new world historical pattern that we have to adapt to, we have to sort of try to anticipate. And it's playing out, you know, in my view, through competition, you know, a new version of great power competition that I would call sort of great, great power network competition. Um, uh, the political um, economist um, uh, Henry Farrell calls it sort of weaponized interdependence. This idea that modern power really just is essentially the ability to surveil and choke point global technology, trade, digital networks of all kind that most of modern living centers depend on, right? So the global network of fiber optic cables, internet, financial transactions through the correspondent banking system, uh, extremely complex technology uh, supply chains for most advanced um, uh, systems like semiconductors. These things are really where uh, great power competition is really um, focused. And so monetary networks are a version of that sort of digital telecommunication system. They, they travel over these networks, and they exist in a legal regime, a sort of a network of, of legal regimes that have effectively allowed the United States to extraterritorialize, extra or what the Chinese call you know, long-arm jurisdiction, our sanctions regime around the world. You know, there's, you know, there, just look at the, the case of the um, apparently failed uh, attempts to impose a price cap on Russian oil was through a kind of sanctions regime where we were forcing people basically to um, you know use Western insurers, and if you couldn't get Western insurance, then then those shipments of oil um, you know may be more expensive. Turned out Russia just basically bought a bunch of ships and self-insured, and so they're just evading the cap. So this just sort of shows you when you try to wield this network power, 
you know, you can do it in two ways. You can either try to, you know, be sort of soft coercion, situate yourself in those key nodes. In the, in the case of the monetary system, it's having those key nodes in terms of, you know, really uh, London and New York City, and being able to exterritorialize your sanction regime to control or influence the, the flows of transactions and to constrain the ability of actors in a global system from participating in financial transactions. China, of course, sees this as a strategic challenge. Then. They have a real objective to not be um, uh, vulnerable to that type of, uh, of economic and financial coercion. So they've tried to roll out a whole package of both technical systems as well as a diplomatic initiative to, look, to first order just mitigate the ability of, of the West to coerce them so they're not as vulnerable if they get into an acute situation where they're vulnerable um, to, to sanctions. But you know, having other regimes, so for example, they've set up um, these systems, the, the central bank digital currency, I think is just one of a whole sort of toolkit that they're trying to develop um, over time that you know, in the, in, the, in the financial sphere, you know, they're trying to sort of replicate nascent versions of what has evolved over many decades in the West, right? So we evolved this sort of global correspondent banking system that really followed the patterns of, of, of trade uh, and development over the course of the 20th century. It was very kind of ad hoc, inorganic, or organic development of, uh, you know, different banking centers, developing offshore euro dollar markets, and then kind of the, the Fed and regulators kind of coming in periodically. And, and, and then really it was the Patriot Act in 2001. Um, uh, post-2001 uh, kind of regulatory regime that basically broadened out kind of the extraterritorial, extraterritorial application of, of, of um, OFAC sanctions and then uh, FinCEN essentially as a way to monitor global banking transactions. China's trying to replicate those, but in a sort of a 21st century techno-driven way. So they're really trying to create, uh, on one hand, um, their own version of a central bank digital currency that allows them the ability to you know, surveil and control any transaction. But they're really trying to internationalize that, not through a network of correspondent banks, but through essentially central bank to central bank relationships that act as like the hubs of a new network that then allows them, with their preferred trading partners, uh, you know, mainly in Asia and the Middle East, um, create their own kind of nascent independent networks that are digitally native, that are built on the protocol that's coming out of China, and that allows them to essentially create their own alternative clearing and settlement systems that bypass sort of chips and the SWIFT system. Very nascent, if you look at the charts, it's like by no means like, like a competitor, like three or 4% of total value, but they're building essentially as, a, as like a network failover, right? So if they ever get blocked out of SWIFT, they have an, they have, they have an alternative option. They can still trade, collect you know, payments and, and, and clear um, uh, transactions with their main energy suppliers in the Middle East and across Eurasia. So it really might not be a challenge to the dollar, but it is a challenge to the effectiveness of sanctions, and therefore the, and therefore the deterrent effect of, of, of what we will, you know, want to try to um, impose on them or coerce them from any, um, say, ambitions over Taiwan. So there's, like, there's a lot there we could keep going, but like, that is, a, I think, a key new pattern of competition over monetary networks that are now you know, riding on these digital rails. And exactly how the US is going to counter that is an open question. This is where we can maybe have, you know, talk, talk more broadly about that, too. Sarah? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've always been, I'm always wary in general of uh, inflated arms race rhetoric, um, just because I, I think it can lead down some roads that you don't necessarily want to go down. And, you know, one thing, I guess, in that vein that I think is interesting is that uh, on this question of China um, and and competition, uh, you know, it's interesting to, that, that China banned crypto a couple years ago. And all of the evidence coming out is suggesting that it's still a huge business in China. And so it, it sort of, you know, something like um, 90 billion alone, Binance did, I was looking at this this morning, 90 billion alone in May of this year. And so this is, you know, there's the, the language of the ban, but then there's the actual practice where it's very clear they're doing kind of a soft touch at best on the implementation of that ban. And so it seems to me that the policy, and we can get to sort of you know, the CBDCs of, and, and the US, um, should be independent of whether this is driven by sort of the competitive arms race mentality or whether we think this is a, an actual um, good idea. I will say too that I feel like I've been around long enough to have been through many cycles of like dollar dominance is ending. Um, so I'm also wary of that sort of pessimism as well. Yeah, I, I think the, I guess I'd make two points. One is just to underscore, I think, what we've already been hearing, which is to distinguish dollar dominance versus CBDCs and the, the, the role that they're playing. Um, China, in particular, has no interest in having their currency be the reserve currency of the world because then they would have to allow it to float, right? They don't want that. That would lead to greater social instability. They, mm -hmm. They're all about preserving social stability to the best that they can. Um, what they do want is to not be constrained by 
uh, a financial infrastructure that they don't control um, and that they can be expelled from on a moment's notice. And that, that was kind of the, the big revelation that so many actors took away from the, the move to sanction uh, Russia after the, again, I, I, hope, I, hope, I don't mean to sound like I'm harping on this, but I think it's really hard to un, uh, you know, overstate the importance of what we did when we sanctioned um, different actors from being able to uh, transact on SWIFT. What that did was incentivize actors like China, who already, I think, were poking around the margins of this, to basically explore how can we set up an alternative payment and settlement system outside of SWIFT so that we have a default option that we can fall back to. Um, uh, and you know, we're already starting to see them you know, make inroads, right? Like they're, they're starting to set up kind of different, um, uh, uh, you know, they've, they've got, you know, a new agreement with Brazil, for example, to kind of do things uh, off of SWIFT uh, in their own, you know, dominating their own currency. That is not, I think the, the media in the U.S. in particular often misconstrues that as China trying to threaten the, the you know, rival, the, the dollar dominance and kind of come after the dollar as the reserve currency. That's not what they're doing. They're trying to get out from under the financial infrastructure that we've built so that they can operate with greater impunity. Um, and that brings me back to the, the point I was making earlier where at certain moments, from a national security perspective, you may you may find something like the Bitcoin ledger to be um, suboptimal compared to SWIFT if you're just looking at it from a U.S. national security perspective. But I'm pretty sure you would find Bitcoin, which is you know permissionless, it's open, it's fully visible, preferable to the system that China's setting up, right? Like that is a we would prefer other people to be on that than we would on on China's because they you know to the point that was just being made. Even if they're not the reserve currency of the world, if the more the world is out, you know, transacting on a system that they control, the surveillance gains you get from that are extraordinary. The insight you have, the leverage points you get, they are well aware. Um, they are well aware of the value that the U.S. that has accrued to the U.S. from a geopolitical perspective by virtue of controlling SWIFT, and they want something similar for themselves. Um, and I think. There's a longer conversation we have around Bitcoin and the ledger and, and what it could do uh, within that debate. Um, the, the other point uh, I wanted to make just related to CBDCs, which is to take it out from a macro level and more to just a micro level of, you know, the I think people um, underestimate uh, exactly how much power financial surveillance can have over your life, especially when that financial surveillance can be coupled to a physical infrastructure that is increasingly tied to the digital world. And what, what I mean by that is, if you are in China, you know, they, so much of the physical infrastructure, especially in urban areas, um, has now been digitized, or there's different access points uh, that, are, that are coming through digital payments. You know, I mean, you know, getting in a car, getting on the train, right, trying to transact at your grocer. Financial, like a CBDC, that the, the state has control over to the individual level, they can basically turn your house into a prison, right? Because if, if you can't leave and go anywhere and transact in the world or get around via you know, any form of transportation because they just shut off your account, they effectively have like incarcerating power over everyone. Um, and I, I, I fear, you know, I'm not worried about the US kind of immediately going down that road if, if we were to explore a CBDC, but I do worry pretty significantly that once that instrument is created, there is going to be immense, all it's going to take is a few events, whether it's, you know, it could be a terrorist attack, it could be some other awful kind of catastrophic thing that happens, and suddenly there's going to be immense pressure to use that system um, uh, in pursuit of different, uh, you know, security or criminal justice activity, um, and it becomes a very slippery slope. Um, and I don't know, in my view, um, you know, I, I, it's very unclear to me how you can have a full-on like retail CBDC and also have a functioning democracy in the long run, as we've defined democracy in terms of the values that we have, because uh, it, the, the power is just immense. We don't think about it, we take it for granted, but if we went down that road and implemented something like that, it would be exceedingly difficult to structure it within a regulatory or institutional structure um, that would curtail the, the potential for abuse of, uh, of that power. Uh, and I, I, I don't see the need for it. Like, I don't know what we get for it, but I certainly know what we could lose. And I, I'd be remiss if, if many democracies went in that direction. Well, I was just gonna like, right on that point, because 
you know, one of the the things that sometimes get brought gets brought up in this context is you know China and the global south, right? Mm -hmm. And there's the human rights angle, but just like the hard great power realist angle is China has a certain strategy to um, mitigate what is an acute weakness of theirs, right? So they don't have uh, the ability to project military capabilities across the world, but they have extreme dependency on resource imports. Uh, commodities, et cetera, to feed and uh, their growing economy. So this is a you know, major vulnerability of theirs. They have made you know trillions of dollars of investments in Africa and, and Asia, across across even Latin America. And the traditional way that most imperial powers or nascent imperial powers you know secure their access to those resources was like military conquest, colonization. China doesn't have that ability, but what they do have is a really sophisticated sort of techno-authoritarian as a service stack. And a lot of these are uh, governments. Um, you know, have have a have an alignment of interest to you know bring in say Huawei five G with uh, with Hikavision surveillance software, ZTE capabilities, sort of, and then the digital currencies kind of come along for the ride. So there's a whole sort of vertical stack that China is offering. It's very appealing to these authoritarians, some of whom have been in power for decades and are, you know, feeling very vulnerable that maybe the you know, new, new, new technology, digital modernization of their economies can really push them out of power. Here, here China is coming in and saying, listen, we can essentially export our model, not only our governance model, not only our political model, but our technology and our whole sort of um, uh, sort of techno governance system, and they're ready to sign up. Like you can look at, you know, basically six countries around the Horn of Africa, from South Africa, Namibia, Zimbabwe. Um, uh, uh, Mozambique, you know, they all sent their leaders from um, uh, the regimes who have been in power for decades to a, a CCP uh, a basically training academy that was co-sponsored by the main sort of leadership academy in Beijing, in Tanzania, where they're getting trained on basically how to replicate the one-party state governance model of China. It just so happens all those countries in the past two, three years have all signed up um, for major telecom deals uh, where all the backbone infrastructure and, 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 and digital capabilities are coming in uh, through Chinese service providers. Um, Specifically, Huawei. So there's a there's a this is a you know there's a multifaceted game, but this is where the sort of hard power politics of strategic competition, especially in these areas in the global south, is going to come up against human rights uh, and and sort of digital um, uh, technologies implications for democracy. And I think there's a natural position here for well, what's the alternative from the United States? If this is what China you know has a determined strategy and capabilities that they're pushing out in the world, like what what do we have to offer? We're going to sort of out totalitarianize. You know, a U.S. dollar CBDC, and they're going to sign up to that. No, that's like been antithetical to our entire, um, our entire approach to to world uh, politics and, and diplomacy. And so, this is where the interesting possibility comes in in terms of dollar-based stablecoins and Bitcoin being a natural synergistic force that's more organic and bottom-up to counter kind of the authoritarian top-down impositions and geopolitical ambitions of, of China. If you look at these. Governments at the national level, you know, they're trying to de-dollarize because maybe they're worried they're going to get on the wrong side of a future U.S. political um, uh, administration if they're sort of tipping into the Chinese uh, sort of geoeconomic and technological orbit. But the populations, they want dollars. They don't want the local currencies, and they certainly don't want the the digital yuan. But how are they dollarizing if they don't have a stable ba banking system? They're dollarizing through dollar-based stablecoins. And so this is where like there is sort of you know natural dollar diplomacy taking place, but through the cryptocurrency ecosystem, but without really like much of a U.S. policy driving it or even aware of it. Sarah, did you have any uh, thoughts on 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 that? Uh, no, I mean it does strike me, and it reminds me a little bit of the early 2010s, I guess, before the Huawei and ZTE ban, where we have these huge swaths of the United States that just were not covered by broadband. And Huawei said, we can come in and do this really cheaply. And that's how most of the world is. That it, it, it doesn't even require that they have a marriage of autocracies. It's that they are digitally barren. And they're looking for access, because digital access is a vehicle for economic growth. Um, and so, you, so then it becomes kind of almost a patronage. OK, we'll provide this very inexpensive service. And then, of course, there are some strings attached. It might not even be, well, in exchange here, you, know, you need to follow these precepts. It's that there's that relationship where the kind of the ethos of the, uh, the broadband, you know, China is then kind of being adopted implicitly by the recipient country. So, I, I mean, not to pile on in, <laughs> in the doomsday, but I think this is a real concern. Well, um, I can tell you all are itching to get to the digital authoritarianism and activism uh, segment of our yet. discussion today. <laughs> um, but just to stay on this geopolitical competition point for, for a moment longer, and I want to make sure we leave time for questions at the end, 
Um, is there a model, whether it's, I don't know, the ECB model or something like that, where there is a way to have privacy uh, with a central bank digital currency, or is it, as Matt says, uh, just the decentralized uh, nature of how uh, digital assets have evolved in the US that is the answer to kind of squaring the circle of how can you have this kind of technology if your adversaries are developing it, right? Uh, but preserving some of the privacy features that we might expect in, in our society. Well, there is a CBDC trilemma that all policymakers are aware of, and this is sort of informing the debate. One is, like, you basically, you know, a trilemma means you can't have, like, all your cake and eat it, too, basically. So there's, like, three things that are mutually inconsistent, so you have kind of, like, bite the bullet on, on one of them. You can either, like, mandate a CBDC that's used, so you have to, like, sort of, you know, force people to use it, you have to uh, essentially peg its interest rate um, lower than what you could get at the prevailing market rate, um, or you have to sort of limit its use, right? You have to sort of only put cap its use at a, you know, maybe a, f a few thousand dollars a year. So you either have to hamstring it, you have to mandate it, or you have to make it very unattractive, or you have to basically like, you know, undermine the banking system. Um, so there's like no easy like, you know, free lunch here when it comes to CBDC. Um, and it seems like we're not really having the debate in public. Um, a lot of the, I think policymakers, especially in Europe, are, I think are defaulting to the Essentially, we'll do a mix of soft coercion, inducements, and maybe like you know backdoor support for the bank system that you know effectively is a is a is a balance sheet extension of the ECB, anyways. Um, so this is you know maybe the way that the Europeans are going to go about it because they have other political objectives, right? They're trying to unify what is fundamentally you know not as a unified political entity, and they try to do this through a currency union, but it, you know there's still a lot of you know heterogeneity and fractiousness. And a European CBDC would sort of help drive, you know, what a lot of the the sort of um, the folks in Brussels, you know, want as a strategic objective, which is to further, you know, unify and federalize the European system, uh, because they don't have a system like we do. Well, we already have a pretty unified federal government. We already have a common currency that isn't used by the world. We have a pretty integrated banking system. Like, I haven't had a compelling argument like for what a CBDC is supposed to do in the United States. Neither have I. Well, and it sounds like worse than that. If there's no compelling argument and there's that downside of, of government overreach once there is one in that sort of national security crisis setting. Yeah. All right. So I think it uh, sounds like we're, our panelists are in agreement on this point. So let's move on to the next subject area, which is, as I mentioned, digital authoritarianism and activism. So we've uh, Chris has given us a very um, visceral example of how this could play out. I'm going to go home and think of my house as a prison now. Um, <laughs> but uh, are there some examples in which uh, digital assets can be used uh, in the activism you know, part of this discussion to uh, subvert some of those uh, authoritarian tendencies uh, that, that may come to pass with, um, with central bank digital currencies or some other sort of form of uh, digital authoritarianism? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the um, uh, the the flip side of everything we're talking about is that there is this um, tremendous you know capability and feature set of this technology that um, you know if if you are a, a democratic you know activist or human rights advocate at any point in the last hundred years, if you ask them, would you want a money that you could kind of transfer value globally without having to worry about a digital, you know, an authoritarian regime kind of, uh, you know, censoring that transaction, they would say yes. Um, you know, if you if you said, you know, would you like a, a messaging medium to be able to communicate with others um, uh, around the world instantaneously um, without fear of an authoritarian regime censoring your transaction or, or message? Um, you know, they would say yes, right? Like the, these are like the two, you know, desirable properties that we've always wanted in both kind of uh, our, our financial infrastructure and also our communications infrastructure. Um, they're kind of within reach. And I, I think part of the, the interesting thing about, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or some of the other um, uh, uh, digital assets that are out there, um, the underlying ledger, I think we forget what it actually is. Like you can, you can think of Bitcoin not as a, a financial kind of network, but fundamentally, it's just a messaging bus, right? Like it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a protocol that allows you know, different actors on a network to communicate with each other. 
that particular network, you know, the convention that's grown up around it is to assign value to particular kind of messages on the network. Um, but it's fundamentally a messaging network uh, that cannot be censored. Um, and that's an extraordinary thing. And if you're, if you're a human rights activist or, again, a, a, you know, an advocate for democracy and liberal values around the world, this is, you know, whether it's Bitcoin specifically or some of the other technologies that are a little bit more optimized for communication instead of value, um, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing uh, to have this technology. Um, and I think it's incumbent upon uh, democratic uh, regimes and democratic um, uh, institutions to try and safeguard that technology, um, especially at a time when, um, you know, so much of the rhetoric that, we, you know, thankfully, good news is over the last few years, um, whether it's this White House or in Congress, you know, like I never, you know, uh, a colleague and I published a report, a report on digital authoritarianism four or five years ago. We were hoping like maybe one person in one office might read it, right, within Congress. Within a year or two, like the, the chair of, um, uh, I think it was the Intelligence Committee, like wrote their own report on digital authoritarianism and called it that, right? And it's like, thankfully, we've got a lot of awareness around it. But it hasn't been, for, for some reason, the, the conversation around confronting and countering digital authoritarianism hasn't yet kind of intersected as robustly as I think it probably should with the conversations around censorship-resistant uh, messaging platforms and decentralized ones. Um, and I, I'd love to see that kind of, uh, in the future, uh, become a more uh, robust uh, conversation and, and intersection. Um, the the Last point I'll, I'll, I'll make, I guess, is, you know, the other thing I'll say about um, Bitcoin and um, other uh, uh, cryptocurrencies is that I think we forget what exactly they are uh, in, in one way, um, which is they're a persistent mechanism for social coordination, right? In addition to being like a messaging platform, that what they're really, the, the value that they're providing um, is offering a persistent mechanism for social coordination. And we have a word for what that is, and that word is an institution, right? And so I think we want to make sure that that institution is one that's effectively a democratic institution over time, that, that adheres to the broader set of democratic institutions that are analog that we've, that we've developed over the last you know, 100 or 200 years and make sure that there's a kind of robust, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, almost symbiotic relationship between the two. I think that's the future that if we want to get to a good place, we need to do that with blockchains. I'd also, I'm gonna just throw my AI hat on and say we need to do the exact same thing on AI because I also think AI is beginning to function as a persistent mechanism. For no, no, we can only talk about. Uh, I will, I will, I will spare you for that one. Um, but you know, again, part of the reason I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this panel is I spend most of my time on AI, but. I see the same challenge there as I do with, with um, this issue of, uh, of um, digital assets and digital currencies where the same set of issues are at stake, but the, the, the actors aren't talking to each other enough, which is why it's such a privilege to be able to, to be here on stage with, with you all. Um, and, and hopefully we can begin to, to figure out the, the way forward and, and um, what to do about some of these threats around uh, digital authoritarianism in particular. Sir? Yeah, well, like Chris, I also work on AI, <laughs> and, uh, I'm, um, and I see parallels as well. And one of the ones, in fact, he, he and I were on a panel a couple months ago where there was a discussion about autonomous vehicles, and you may remember this, but someone, uh, a policymaker said, well, yes, but you know, there was uh, this fatality from an autonomous vehicle. <laughs> and I said, but yeah, well, that, that is, that's true. Uh, but we have 3,000 fatalities on the road every year from distracted driving that arguably counterfactually could be avoided. Um, and I think in the policy process where I see also similarities is when for new technologies um, that are complicated and not everyone understands, I think it can be easy to kind of revert to um, shorthands, tropes, and all downside. And I think where, you know, I think a group like this can try to refocus the conversation around not just, well, the illicit activity, dot, 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 in North Korea, but also kind of these, uh, these other mechanisms, you know, the humanitarian side, where this gives voice and access to groups and countries that wouldn't have that otherwise. I'll, I'll just plug Alex Gladstein's work at the Human Rights Foundation, where he's, you know, seeing the use of Bitcoin and dollar-based stablecoins as just like a critical tool in you know, his day job as a human rights campaigner and supporting activists in Belarus and Afghanistan and um, other parts of 
of the world where you know these things aren't seen as you know speculative um, sort of gambling plays like you know privileged people in the West uh, you know sometimes view them as and policymakers kind of deride them as they're actually used as very effective human rights tools. Okay, I'm feeling a little bit more hopeful than I was uh, five minutes ago. So um, let's, let's see if there's some uh, questions from the audience um, about uh, strategic competition and digital currencies. Yes, sir. So there's a lot of focus today on the role of Bitcoin and national security vis-a-vis -vis Bitcoin as a value transfer network or medium of exchange. I'm curious if any of you have thoughts about how the Bitcoin's monetary policy and the difference between that and the dollar plays into sort of US strategic objectives or national security questions? Because I can, I can start with that one. Um, yeah, I mean, that is, that is very interesting. It's a little more speculative, um, but I, I think it's worth um, serious analysis from a policy perspective, right? So if you think about the, I don't wanna get too technical, but like the, the function of the US Treasury security at, you know, is really critical to both you know, the stability of the global financial system, um, and kind of the enduring hegemonic power of the United States. I mean, it's the fact that U.S. Treasury Securities views the most safe and liquid reserve asset that, you know, and it's also mandated essentially on the balance sheets of every major, every major financial institution is used as the main source of collateral in all dollar funding markets around the world. We've pinned a lot of sort of hegemonic weight uh, onto this particular asset, the U.S. Treasury Security. Um, and we're sort of putting a lot of additional strain on that, on, on that market. We saw essentially it freeze up in March of 2020, um, and we sanctioned uh, uh, sort of Russia's holdings of it. So we've sort of hit both the liquidity and the safety per perception of the US Treasury security, which is sort of the foundation of our geoeconomic um, power. Not exactly a great move to when you're going into the decisive decade in, in competition with China. And that's not to say that the treasury market's going to fall apart or that we're going to you know, go into some you know, um, un-retrievable un, un, un sort of, uh, debt crisis. It also doesn't help that we keep going into these de uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, debt ceiling debates. We constantly threat, uh, threat, threaten shutdowns. Our political system is sending all sorts of signals out to the rest of the world that like, maybe you should hedge your bets. Um, and so how are you going to hedge your bets? right? And our, our, our authoritarian adversaries across Eurasia you know, they don't have an ideal solution, but they're sort of patching one together on the fly. And it's sort of a combination of the fact that they control most of the hard resources, you know, on the planet, right? So OPEC plus Russia dominate essentially the three, uh, two of the three pillars of the global system, right? So we control credit and capital. They basically control hard commodities, oil, resources, um, and goods production between China and OPEC plus. And so you can imagine, you know, them trying to create very kludgy um, arrangements that mix, you know, some, some degree of commodity gold and um, you know, maybe RMB settlement on the margins to try to hedge themselves. Now, that is you know, maybe a return to like a 19th century economic system. That would, that would be, you know, to that, for that to succeed, you have to imagine a much larger collapse in the global trade and, and economic system. But Bitcoin is interesting because it functions as a reserve asset much more like gold does in that sense, right? In that the network gives you this sort of um, centers of persistent transaction ability very quick, like a fiat sort of you know, digital transmit, transmission system. But the underlying endogenous asset is a scarce reserve asset, like more, more like gold in its sort of monetary properties. And so that's an interesting new hybrid that you have you know, this emerging monetary system that has an endogenous asset that has you know, properties more like gold um, that, can, that can go on rails that are more like the fiat system. So that's an interesting possibility. You can imagine governments around the world you know, starting to you know, marginally shift some of their reserve holdings you know, maybe into something like Bitcoin, maybe not soon. But I think there was a Harvard paper by Matthew Ferranti um, uh, who just left their, their PhD program. And he did this analysis of like, OK, given your sanctions exposure, or the risk of sanctions exposure, and given a sort of a portfolio optimization model of US Treasury securities, gold, and Bitcoin, like what would be the sort of rational um, allocation for a foreign exchange reserve manager? And he sort of, you know, like every model, you make assumptions. But he did the, did the math, and he said, anywhere from like a, you know, 2 to 3% to like 10% uh, holdings you know, make sense according to you know, the model assumptions that he had. That's like a non-trivial um, diversification. I don't think we have that you know, factored into any geopolitical or geoeconomic strategy this decade. Um, but that, that could matter more if Bitcoin you know, you know, continues to monetize, but all this is premised on its growth. Right? right now, it's a little bit too small to play that role. Um, but you can imagine you know, the scenarios, you have to do scenario analysis. So if there's a scenario where Bitcoin monetizes to several trillion dollars, maybe even more, then they, then they become a reserve asset that nation states could think about. And that would have geopolitical, uh, you know, serious implications. But, you know, that's a little bit more speculative. 
It is speculative, and I'm going to also plug Alex Gladstein mm -hmm. because I wrote this book in, in 2018. It was called Taxing Wars, and it was this observation about how you know, the country like the U.S. had uh, had issued or had paid for its wars over history with war taxes. And this observation that the U.S. just doesn't do that anymore, and instead we just go further and further into debt, and notwithstanding the periodic shutdowns, uh, sort of this debt pile just keeps growing. And what that implies is that if it's infinite, then you can just kind of keep fighting wars and no one really notices, because, again, notwithstanding, you know, Monday coming along and no one, none of the government workers uh, going into work, like there, there is less of a recognition or a tie between kind of overseas activities or warfighting behavior um, and the way we're paying for wars because people don't see it. So Alex had come up with this, what he called his Bitcoin peace theory, mm -hmm. is that because it's not infinite, because it's, uh, th there's a finiteness to it, that that would create kind of more of, more of a connection between kind of um, what we were doing on, on the monetary, monetary side and our, our foreign policy behavior um, on the other side. So there's something I think very interesting and intriguing about that theory, it, but again, it, it's a theory, but I think it is grounded in some, I think pretty sound observations about sort of the downside of this un unlimited kind of debt versus the properties of, of Bitcoin. Chris, you're gonna take a... I don't have much to add beyond what's already been covered. Okay, they're, good. They're the real experts on that. Okay. Uh, another question from the audience? Yes, sir. Um, a few months previously, Jason Lowry made some waves with his work, soft, uh, sophomore, uh, describing the Bitcoin network as a potential tool of national power. That did right. I rubbed a lot of Bitcoins the wrong way, not wanting to see the network used in such a way. Welcome your thoughts on that thesis. Is the Bitcoin protocol potentially a tool of national power? I'll come to you. Uh, actually, let's. So, uh, Bitcoin as a tool of national security for the U.S. would be a way to summarize your question. So, let's take that. And then, sir, you had a, a question. Yeah. How do you feel about the rise of other stable coins outside of Bitcoin, like Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, XRP? Because these are other things that people are actually creating through um, computerized systems and digital mines, and then they're um, bringing in workforce through it as well to actually develop it. Okay, so it would be, uh, what are the panel's thoughts on other stable coins uh, aside from Bitcoin? So national security implications of, of using Bitcoin and uh, other stable coins. Um, because people can trade their coins for Bitcoin. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there was one particular thesis I think that Jason Lowry had, which is sort of um, a much more tight, like official integration of the instruments of existing US national power and resources with the Bitcoin network. So he had a very specific policy proposal, which is essentially a national hash, like hashing force that like the US government should essentially compete in the global zero sum sort of race for, um, for the next uh, block reward by standing up like a national hash force. I, I think the incentives are, you know, maybe not in that direction. I don't think the United States needs to adopt like an official um, overt strategy of mining Bitcoin. Um, it could happen, you know, down the line. But I think, you know, in general, like we have a pretty good sort of free market approach to these sorts of systems. And unless there's like major market failures, unless there's major externalities, you know, the US government should generally, you know, take a hands-off approach. And especially given the endogenous incentives of mining, you don't need to have the government step in. Essentially, that would immediately put every other miner out of business if the US government basically, which has unlimited debt capacity, could just mine indefinitely. Um, uh, I mean, there's like larger implications, I think, for Bitcoin, like the actual mining network, which we haven't talked about in national security, which is, you know, Bitcoin mining relies on running very, uh, you know, very large numbers of computations uh, as fast as possible to beat the next guy to the block reward. And so if you have you know, more computing power um, using very uh, specialized computing circuits, mainly which come out of... Um, uh, you know, a handful of, fab, uh, of fabs in, in Asia, then you can, you know, build, build larger uh, mining operations. So there's a deep sort of physical supply chain dependency that Bitcoin miners have that is like a, a new version or, a, a, you know, a similar version of the larger sort of supply chain uh, uh, geopolitical risk conversation we have about semiconductors. Um, and you can imagine, speculatively, hey, look, there's an, an endogenous demand signal coming from Bitcoin miners to bring fabrication here, <laughs> right? Um, and we have a lot of uh, excess power in a lot of uh, parts of, United States as well as in, in the global south where, you know, you, you have, um, you know, kind of a synergy between the incentives of Bitcoin mining and, you know, essentially um, renewable power and uh, 
uh, electrification projects in parts of the world. So that's like a larger geopolitical conversation with Bitcoin mining and national security. I don't think, though, I don't subscribe to the core thesis that the U.S. government should have its own like mining operations. Yeah, I mean, I I would probably echo that in the sense that um, you know I think where states would be tempted to get involved um, is probably two. There's probably two reasons. One is you know we we reach an equilibrium point down the road where um, uh, most states have Bitcoin as a reserve currency within their their central treasury, um, and they feel like they actually need to mine to uh, preserve the. Um, the integrity of the network and the censorship resistance of the network, and therefore the value that they've got in their their banks, which I think is part of what like Jason's. I haven't read the full book, but my my sense is that that's part of his long term vision for how this would play out. Would be states feel like they have to start mining and having hash forces in order to preserve the the value of what they've got on their balance sheet. Um, that's one potential. That's like a far future scenario. I think. Um, there's another potential scenario where, you know, we've got SWIFT now and, you know, imagine Bitcoin kind of rises over time to the point where it kind of eclipses SWIFT and most, most transactions are now happening on, or being settled rather, um, on, on something like Bitcoin. I can see a state saying we, we feel like it's in this, the interest of our citizens and our population and our financial ecosystem to ensure the integrity of that network and therefore we're going to start kind of mining, but to the point that um, was just made, I don't think it makes sense for a state to do that, at least not um, one with the financial system that we have. I think it, you can just default to ensuring that a certain amount of the, the capacity is happening within your territory or those of your allies uh, who share a similar kind of view of, on how the financial ecosystem should be. And so long as a majority of hash power is in that, that kind of concentrated group of actors who will probably be incentivized for you know, just commercial reasons of their own, um, I don't know that the state would need to get involved explicitly. I think, um, you know, like we're already seeing most, you know, how much hash power has now migrated to the U.S.? Like it's an extraordinary number, right? It's like, it's, yeah, right? So it's like, I don't know what the U.S. government would add on top of that or, or would need to. Um, so I'm, it, you know, Jason's thesis is a really interesting one. I think it's, it raises a whole number of really fascinating uh, questions and debates, but I, I don't really see it playing out, at least not, not in the near term. And I think we'll just, uh, the gentleman's question about uh, other stable coins apart from Bitcoin, and uh, we'll have to end on that because I think we're at time. So, Sarah, you're looking at me. Do you want to take that one, or uh, Chris, or Matt? I, I will say, so I think we need to distinguish between uh, stable coins and, and currencies generally. I think the most stable coins are primarily on Ethereum or other, other transactions and, and are created via smart contracts on networks that are capable of having uh, smart contracts that I think in the future there may be ways where that uh, a, a stable coin can be placed onto the or settle onto the Bitcoin ledger um, in a in at scale I don't, I don't think we've reached that point yet so I don't know that there's really kind of uh, compelling stable coins on Bitcoin right now um, there are they are to your point on on ethereum um, to the point about non bitcoin networks overall um, I think unless something like ordinals or stacks kind of really grows on the Bitcoin side, I think for the, the communication um, protocols that have censorship resistance or something approximating censorship resistance, it's, it's going to have to be on something like Ethereum or Solana or, or another uh, system to really be able to handle the throughput that uh, you know, major, major social you know, messaging networks uh, would have. So. Um, uh, happy to, to speak more about that, but it's it's a. Uh, uh, I realize this is like a, there's like Bitcoin maxis and then there's others, and I don't want to get into that debate necessarily <laughs> at, at to end things. But um, there there's a lot of compelling niche use cases outside of Bitcoin too. Yeah, and I'll just finish up by saying you know we say we we'll talk about Bitcoin, dollar-based stable coins, and larger cryptocurrency ecosystem. Like these are all ongoing, dynamic, open-source projects that have very different kind of. Um, network features and very different kind of um, governance features. Like Bitcoin is kind of unique in its governance feature, you know, being decentralized, um, you know, and truly not having like a foundation or any figurehead behind it. So there's like a certain geopolitical relevance that it could, you know, theoretically obtain that would be different than, you know, like essentially like a startup, right, that has a certain compelling use case for a technology and wants to get VC investment and get some adoption. I think those are very different in terms of a geopolitical analysis. Um, but from a policy perspective and geopolitically, like you need to think about these things as adaptive dynamic technology systems. Like it's going to be very different in two to three years, what these things can do, what they look like. 
And so whatever sort of framework or mental model you, you know, are, are forming now is likely going to have to adapt and change, um, sometimes pretty radically in the next few years. And so that's kind of just the, you know, the last point I would have. Great. Well, let's leave it there. Uh, again, thank you to our panelists, Chris Meserol, Sarah Kreps, Matthew Pines, uh, and to the uh, Bitcoin Policy Institute and Cornell Brooks uh, Public Policy Tech Policy Institute, and to all of you for being with us today. Have a great afternoon, and thank you again. Thank you, Miami, for the last three years in this amazing city. The whole world shut down, but Miami welcomed us with open arms. We want to show Bitcoin to the whole world. We are taking the conference on the road to set the stage for Bitcoin in a new city. Nashville. Bitcoin 2024 is coming to Nashville in Tennessee, a city that is known as a music and freedom city. Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville from July 25th to 27th. My fellow plubs, Bitcoin Magazine is headed back to Amsterdam in 2023. We're returning to Westergast to build on this historic success and continue our mission of global hyper-Bitcoinization. Bitcoin Amsterdam was the biggest European Bitcoin event in history, held from October 12th to the 14th at Westergas Event Forum, offering six different on-site locations and three fully programmed stages. We are absolutely stoked to catapult the European community to the global stage. Tickets are at their lowest prices right now. Lock yours in at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. That's b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam.